0: A lot of times I'll have somebody place the mother's picture over the left shoulder or put it on the left nightstand and say these words, you know, mom, I realize that I can't do this with you in real life, but, and I realize you would have given me more if you had gotten more from your parents, but mom, can you hold me at night while I'm sleeping? You know, you're talking to this picture, you're visualizing a higher aspect of your mother, maybe her higher self if you feel spiritual or this being guided by some spiritual force if that fits in your world. But saying these words, mom, please hold me at night when I'm sleeping and help me heal this break in the attachment between us. Teach me how to trust your love, how to receive it and how to let it in without taking care of you, just receiving. You see, Dougs, doing something like that, even though they're not healing with their parents in real life, they're doing it in visualization can be just as potent. When we visualize something, the same regions of the brain activate, the same neurons activate as doing it in real life.
1: I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. Mark is the director of the Family Constellation Institute in San Francisco and is a leading expert in the field of inherited family trauma. His book, It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle, was the winner of the 2016 Nautilus Book Award in Psychology and has been translated into 22 languages. His articles have appeared in Psychology Today, MindBodyGreen, MariaShriver.com, and others. Today, we're going to chat about how the cycle of inherited trauma actually works and an in-depth look at how it's different from other forms of trauma. Mark's going to provide examples on how inherited trauma can impact your adult attachment style and relationships. He's also going to share some signs and symptoms that you may have generational trauma and common triggers that you may experience. Mark's going to provide you tools to heal and break the cycle of inherited trauma and how to know if present day anxiety and stress is caused by current life events versus inherited trauma. We're going to go over some practical steps to improve the relationship with your parents. Mark's also going to share three ways unhealed parent relationships will impact your adult relationships and why you should pay attention to how much time you're looking at the past and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Mark Willen to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Mark Willen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Doug. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited to chat with you today for many reasons. And, and one, and I was explaining this to you before we hit the record button, I've had a lot of conversations on the show with, with people around the topic of trauma. We've covered childhood trauma. We've covered different traumas that occur in adulthood. We've covered big T. We've covered little T. And we've touched on like generational trauma, inherited trauma in, like indirectly in some ways. But we haven't really dove in too deep into it and i know like this is what you're you're known for like you're you're probably like one of the most recognized people on this subject itself so i think a good place for us to start to, as a primer for our conversation is so like what is inherited trauma and how is it different than the traditional trauma that you we hear about normally
0: so let's say one of our parents or our grandparents had a significant trauma an event they Lost their mom or their dad when they were babies, when they were young, or maybe our mom or our dad they were sent away when they were little, or placed in an orphanage, or you know maybe one of their siblings died tragically. You know, an event like this it can break the heart of the family. But the the key is the reaction to the trauma doesn't necessarily stop with the people who experienced it. So the feelings. And the sensation, specifically the, the stress response, the way the genes express, this can pass forward to the children and the grandchildren, affecting them in a, in a similar way, even though they didn't personally experience the trauma. And now there's a lot of substantial biological
1: evidence that demonstrates this. Wow. That's, that's really, really It's eye-opening, and I think it's very useful for people because you see a lot of people. We see many people that experience trauma firsthand, right? And then they get into adulthood, and they're able to do some work in therapy or in some sort of program, and they're able to kind of trace it back to something like, oh, like you know, something happened like sexually when I was a kid, or I was picked on, or my my parent went to jail, like something that was super direct that that's right there in front of them. But then there's a certain Percentage of the population that still experiences these signs of trauma, but they have no clue where it came from. Right. Oh, because no, yeah. Because they're like, oh. my childhood wasn't that bad, or like, you know, I don't really remember anything like crazy traumatic happening to me. So, why is my life like this? So, what exactly? Like scientifically, like you said, there's some like biological stuff that's going on that people have now connected the dots to like, what exactly is, does the research say as to why specifically in the genes and everything, this really impacts people as a trauma gets passed down?
0: To, To use a computer analogy, we don't enter the world with a clean hard drive as an infant. You know, there seems to be this operating system that's already in place that contains the fallout from from traumas that our parents and our grandparents have experienced. And here we are a generation later, a newborn, born with fears and feelings that didn't originate with us, that don't belong to us. And, you know, uh, why is this? The science is clear. When a trauma happens to it, when a trauma happens, it, it changes us, literally, there's a chemical change in our DNA. And this can change how our genes function sometimes for generations. So technically after this traumatic event, a chemical tag will attach to our DNA and tell the cells to use or to ignore certain genes. So we're better able to deal with what just happened. And then the way our genes are affected changes how we act, or how we feel. For example, we can become sensitive or reactive to situations that are similar to this original trauma, even if this trauma occurred, Doug, in a past generation, so that we have a better chance of surviving it in this generation. I'll give you an example. If our grandparents came from a war-torn country, so there's bombs going off, there's bullets flying, there's people being shot, there's uniform men lining people up in the square, there's people being taken away. Our, our grandparents would develop an epigenetic um, response. In other words, they would develop a skill set to help them out. The skill set could involve sharper reflexes. That's a positive thing. Quicker reaction times. That's a positive thing reactions to the violence, which may not be so positive, like a hypervigilance or a freeze response or a fight-flight response to help them survive the trauma that, that's going on, the, this war trauma. Now the problem is they're passing that forward and here we are inheriting a stress response from our grandparents with the dials set to 10 preparing us to deal with this catastrophe that doesn't arrive because we're not born in the same war-torn country. And so we we rarely make this link. Here we are two generations later not making the link that our anxiety, our hypervigilance, our depression, our shutdown, our freeze response is connected to our parents and grandparents. We just think we're we're wired this way.
1: Right. And I think it's pretty, pretty known now. I think just with how much research has come out and just how much we've progressed in the, in the space of trauma and mental health, that if you have a poor experience with your parents, that there's a good chance that it could impact you in your adulthood with your relationship to yourself, your relationships with others, how you pursue a career and that sort of thing. But it's not as much talked about that th- actually the way your parents grew up could impact all those things on, on a broader scale as well. Right. Oh, so-
0: I, I love what you just said, because if our parents have had, you you use the word, if we had a poor experience with our parents, right? Well, yeah. This stuff pretty much can uh, uh, guarantee If our parents have gone through, if their parents or our parents have gone through significant traumas, it affects their parenting, particularly attachment. You know, if our mom had adverse childhood experiences or her mom or her dad had adverse childhood experiences, this affects her ability to parent. And thus we can have, like you said, a poor experience with our parents because of generational traumas. So yeah, I'm known as the generational trauma guy, but I often find myself working with attachment because of, you know, traumas in the generations create parenting issues and attachment issues.
1: Right. And I want to, I want to dive into something we were chatting about before, because I think it's just a relevant example that people will relate to. And that's my own childhood experience where, I was talking about a lot of the parallels in my adult relationships that I've noticed in my own childhood. And I don't want to get into specifics with my adult relationships necessarily, but, you know, I was saying that my dad walked out on my mom when I was five, my parents got divorced and it was a pretty toxic divorce. Like there was not a lot of communication between them. I mean, even though like we split time between my mom and my dad, like their relationship just was one where they hardly communicated with each other. I think just only via email and they were fighting over custody a lot. And the reason that I bring this up is because you had alluded to like a lot of the potential turmoil that I could, I was faced with and that many others who were in a situation like this are faced with as they grow up, especially how how it relates to attachment since we were just talking about that. So if you could kind of paint the picture of some Uh of the things that somebody like myself or somebody else might be susceptible to in a situation like that as they're growing up. And maybe they can better understand why they're seeking out a certain partner or they're just not able to, to love themselves in the proper way. I think people would appreciate that. Do you like free stuff? Well, you're in luck because Optimizer's Black Friday deal starts now, and not only are they giving you a huge discount all month long, they are also giving away over $200 worth in free gifts. This is their best sale of the entire year, so now is the perfect time to stock up on some of their best-selling Magnesium Breakthrough, the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium for stress relief and better sleep all in one bottle. As I have mentioned previously, I have been using this to help improve my sleep, and it's unlike any other magnesium supplement that I have used in the past. Most magnesium supplements fail because they are synthetic and they are not full spectrum. When you get all seven critical forms of magnesium, pretty much every function in your body gets upgraded, from your brain to your sleep to your pain and inflammation and, of course, less stress. For the month of November, they are offering 10% off using my unique code, plus over $200 in free gifts with select purchases. So go to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug10 to get your discount and free gifts today. Oh, and one last thing. You should know all Bioptimizer supplements are best in class. If for some reason you feel differently, you can get a full refund up to one year after your purchase, no questions asked. Again, the link to go to right now for this exclusive deal is www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash Doug. With code DOUG10, do it now while supplies last, and don't miss the November 30th deadline. Now back to the show. I'm,
0: I'm glad you're asking me that question. We have no idea because we don't remember what happened when we were in the womb, when we were an infant, when we were one, two, three. In fact, the, our hippocampus, which helps us form memories, doesn't even come online until the age of two or three, when it begins to establish its connections to the prefrontal cortex. So these early events are a mystery to us and we don't even think of them as being adverse, but what happened, let me give a list, what happened when we were in the womb, events in utero. Maybe a baby died before us and our mom was afraid we would die too. Maybe that baby died in a late-term miscarriage or stillborn or as an infant, and our mom is so terrified, we'll, we'll die too, that she pulls her attunement away in utero, thinking that I don't want to be let down again. I don't want to be disappointed. Well, that has a deep effect because we now know that attunement has to begin at conception. We didn't know this years ago. We know it now. So let's say our mom wasn't going to keep us and she gave us away or or she considered an abortion and the that affects us and this relationship with our mother let's say our parents were fighting drinking cheating separating when we were in utero or when we were small young even up to age 5 you said that your dad left your mom when you were five. Well, I think about the years prior to that, when they were fighting, not getting along, she was stressed, she didn't feel supported. That affects attachment. That, that would affect her mothering and her ability to give you everything you would have needed during this crucial neurologically potent time when you're an infant or when you're a young child. So if she's not feeling supported, that affects attachment. If she didn't love our father or felt afraid our father was gonna leave her, that affects attachment. If she felt trapped in the marriage, that affects attachment. If she was worried about money, shelter, food, if something happened, maybe her mom died, her dad died, her sibling died, her best friend died, a war was happening. All of this translates into cortisol, which can be caustic to the fetus, Uh, And and her pull away, her stress, can be harmful to the child. Hey, look, you know, we don't realize this, but the cells that will become our heart and our nervous system are already present when we're in utero at 20 days. So the neural groove, the neural tube, all of this that'll become our nervous system, our heart's already there. There's a somatic imprint in utero. And now we've got to look, if I extend it further, Doug, let's look at events during birth, labor, delivery, infancy, childhood. Did her body do well with the pregnancy? Did it begin to reject the pregnancy? Was the labor long? Was the delivery difficult? Were we given away? Uh, Were we adopted out? Did Did the doctors have to use forceps? Were we put in an incubator? Was she hospitalized after? Were we hospitalized? Did mom and dad take a vacation too early? Or your situation, were they fighting? Were they they discontented? Were were you going back and forth to your moms and your dads? Were you sent to grandmoms when you were little? All of these things affect attachment. It, It even goes further than that. I'll say one more sentence, and then I'll turn it back over to you. Did our mom not get enough from her mom, and thus she couldn't give enough. Did our mom, I'll go further, did she not feel chosen by our dad? If our dad left, he wasn't choosing her, and she was feeling stressed. All of this affects attachment. So I'm giving a, a, quite a map here, Doug, but I think it's an important map for people to realize that these early events can affect even if we don't remember it what we were given and can affect attunement because our mom didn't feel supported.
1: Yeah. You said, you said a lot there. And one of the things that came to mind was another thing that we talked about before we hit the record button. And that, when I was telling you the story, you said that, you know, i and this isn't like verbatim, but you were saying something along the lines of, you know, when my dad left and my mom was going through this stressful moment, she wasn't able to give me or my younger brothers the love that we probably needed at that time and therefore we i was giving and almost becoming like somewhat of a caretaker indirectly for her and then i guess that impacts like us as we get into adulthood where now when we're going to to seek out like a romantic partner we're going to seek out you know for me like a woman who's stressed anxious.
0: You're a quick learner.
1: <laughs> we, had a,
0: we had like a one minute conversation, <laughs> but that's exactly what I said. So look, so look, if we have a stressed mom, the baby can't is, doesn't feel secure, doesn't feel safe and needs a bond for this security and safety. And sometimes that bond, which should be through receiving from her, gets switched around. So now we're taking care of her emotionally and we can't take in from her. And the reason we're taking care of her is the strategy. We're not, it's not even conscious strategy. It's a baby strategy. It's almost like if I make mom feel okay, she'll make me feel okay. So, and and as I also said to you earlier, our early relationship with our mother is the foundation. It's the blueprint for building safety and security in in a relationship with another, uh, it's the foundation for trusting life. It's the foundation for trusting experiences, trusting people, trusting the care we receive, trusting a partner, trusting a therapist, trusting a doctor, trusting our body. So yes, just like you said, if we were her emotional caregiver, her emotional caretaker to get support because to to have a bond in other words if i give to her then she can give to me later and this sets up a pattern of overextension a pattern of being a giver being a people pleaser being a caretaker so now all of a sudden we may later on choose partners that are heavy stressed depressed disconnected because that's the model of love when we were an infant the motto of love is, I need to take care of my partner slash my mother because she's stressed out. So here we are choosing people that are difficult, uh, depressed, stressed, unhappy. And the motto is choosing somebody who I can take care of because that is what love looks like. And I want to scream and say, no. That's not what that early love was supposed to look like. That early love was supposed to be, we were an infant, a baby, a child who w- we were meant to receive, not to give.
1: Yeah. And there is a lot that you said that, that so many people are going to relate to. And I think to sum it up, I guess it's just what you call when you, you continually attract somebody who's emotionally unavailable, right? Like that's the thing. Right. And you know, it's interesting. You talked about, you said one of the things you said to me before we recorded as well, was you were like, Doug, just keep receiving from your mom, like keep letting her do things for you. And when you said that to me, I have a hard time with that, you know, and I don't have my mom and I's relationship now compared to when I was a teenager is so much better, like so much better. But I always am saying like, she, she's always asking me when I'm going to come down and see her and you know, spend time with her in Florida and, you know, her to, to show me a good time with my stepdad. And I'm always like, has not hesitant, but I always kind of put it off. And I always feel weird. Like, I don't want her doing anything for me. I almost feel bad because I'm like, you know, I'm a grown person now. Like I'm 33. Like, why do I need my mom to still do stuff for me?
0: So this, so we're going to go back to that infant or that childhood strategy of being a caretaker. There's more involved in that strategy. We also become efficient, capable, and independent. Now, those are good things on the surface, very good things. But we often don't let ourselves take in and receive. Mm. We're the giver or we're the efficient one, the capable one. Remember, that's the early childhood strategy. So when I say, you know, it's helpful to still take in from her because that strategy doesn't take in. That strategy gives but can't receive. So a lot of times people come to me with the wound of, hey, I'm a giver in my relationship. I'm not saying you are, but I'm saying they come to me with the wound of I'm a giver and I get left, or I'm a giver and then I get resentful and I leave, or I choose difficult relationships uh, where I'm giving and I don't let myself take in. I don't trust receiving. So trusting, receiving can begin with taking in from our mom. So that's why I said that. It's always a good idea, even if we're 30, 40, 50, if your mom's still alive, find a way where you can take something in. Don't expect her to change because she won't. You know, one of the things I say in the book is the change occurs in us. But if possible, let ourselves take in like like the child that we are, to our parents, rather than the big one who doesn't need them. Let ourselves take in something from our mother and our father, and that actually will have a good result.
1: So we've talked about when you're, you're continually somebody who is seeking emotionally unavailable people, or you're feeling, you know, more stressed than not. I know we, you touched on that and and, P, and you're also, you're dating people that you're, it's like a one-sided relationship, I guess you could say, where that person's just continuing to give and you feel like that's how you're adding the value is continuing to give in the relationship is being a sign of maybe you experience some form of of trauma. Like how does some, like what are some other signs that that people, you know, that you've seen people experience and that's forced them to go back and and look into some of this inherited trauma in their family? Okay, so...
0: I like that we're switching gears because we're going to go more into my wheelhouse with inherited family trauma because there are signs. So I just want to finish up, put a cap on what we said before. Yeah, the fact if if we're a giver and a people pleaser in relationships, it could be a sign that we were a giver or sensitive or trying to help or please our stressed mother. So I do wanna put a cap on that. Yeah, that can be a good sign that there could have been a way which we didn't receive we, receive, we gave. But now switching gears and looking at inherited family trauma, trauma that we've inherited from our parents or grandparents. We can be born with an anxiety or a depression and never separated from the events of the previous generation. But Doug, we can also experience a fear or a symptom that strikes suddenly or unexpectedly when we reach a certain age. For example, you and I talked about age 31. Why don't you talk about age 31 if you want? And, and then I'll go back and talk more about this.
1: Yeah. And so I think my dad was 31 when he left my mom, or 31, 32. I, I can't, you know, it's, I don't remember the exact month where, when he left. And then last year, I was in a relationship that I just, I just knew wasn't going to last forever, Let's just put it that way. But I was also felt like a little stuck because how how old were you? That's the key. Oh, how old was I? So I was 31, 32, the same age as my dad. So this
0: is, this is, I'm glad you said that because this is what I want to touch on. Okay. So sometimes we can, we can experience a fear or a symptom or take an action or a behavior at a certain age, or when we hit a certain milestone or event in our lives. So for example, we don't make the connection. Our, our mom, for, I'll go back two generations. So grandma becomes a widow at 31, let's say, and grandpa dies and she never marries again. And our mom and dad, separate or our dad leaves at thirty-one, thirty-two, around the same age and we when we hit age 31 32 it's as almost as though there's an ancestral alarm clock ringing inside us and we look at the person we're with and we're saying yeah she doesn't do it or he doesn't do it for me anymore at the same age without linking that this age is significant in the family history now it's not just ages it's it's Hitting milestones or events, for example, as soon as we get married, and that can be a triggering event. In the book, I talk about a woman who loves her fiancé, greatest guy in the world. But as soon as she gets married to him, she feels trapped and she doesn't understand it. And so when we looked in her family history, we saw that both of her grandmothers were given away as child brides at nine years old and 12 years old in Iraq to much older men, men that were like 30 years older. And so until she saw that, that her grandmothers were trapped in marriage, she didn't make the connection. And then when we looked at her sisters, it was so interesting. The one sister, her oldest sister, her oldest sister married a guy 30 years older like the grandmothers. She felt trapped like the grandmothers when she got married. And then the other sister refused to get into relationships at all, lest she be trapped. So marriage can be a trigger. Another trigger is moving to a new place. And then suddenly we become, even if we move across town, Doug, you know, we move five blocks away and suddenly we become depressed, like our ancestors that were persecuted and forced out of their homeland. So moving to a new place can be a trigger or we get rejected by our partner and the grief. And even if we were with this person for only uh, three months, let's say, but we have this incredible grief and the grief is insurmountable and it's taking us back to a much earlier grief, maybe a break in the attachment with our mother or we, we go to have a child that can be another trigger. And it's as though that ancestral alarm clock starts ringing. I'll tell you a story. I once worked with this woman who was consumed with anxiety, but she never made the connection. Why? She just said, I have this terrible anxiety, terrible, terrible. And I said, wait a minute, let's break it down. When did it start? And she said, seven months ago. What happened since seven months ago? She said, well, that's when I got pregnant. So I said, so you're pregnant right now? Yes, yes and you know that question in my book, what's the worst fear? What's the worst thing that could happen to you if you get pregnant? And she immediately says, I'll harm my baby. I'll harm my baby. And I said, did you ever harm a baby? And she said, no. And then I asked the big question, did anybody in your family ever accidentally harm a baby? And she was about to say no. And she goes, Oh, my God, she says, my grandmother, when she was a young woman, she lit a candle and she caught the curtains on fire and then the house caught on fire and the baby was upstairs on the second floor and she couldn't get the baby out. And we were never allowed to talk about this, she said, because my grandmother, you know, you could never, you had to walk on eggshells. You could never talk about these things at home. And then in that moment, uh, she made the link that she had inherited that terror from her grandmother, <clears throat> then I can I can help her break the pattern. But right. you see how this works, Doug. Sometimes it's ages, sometimes it's events, milestones. Those are the signs that we can be carrying inherited family trauma.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot there to unpack. And And, and, and the reason that I wanted to go back here Is because when we talked about attachment, like that's like the symptom and something that you might, you're going to have to potentially go back to what we're talking about now in order to heal that and fix that moving forward. So I felt like before we kind of go back there, let's, let's kind of bring it back to the origin story. Right. Beautiful. Um, So like, how does somebody, I guess, begin to do the work? Like, how does somebody begin to start to unpack the inherited trauma? Because you know, I I think when somebody knows that they experienced something as a child, they can, it's simply not simply, but they can be like, okay, like I'm going to go, you know, improve the relationship with my mom, or I'm going to go seek out a therapist who specializes in like sexual abuse or something like that. And go on and on with these examples. But like, how does somebody know like that their great grandpa, great grandmother or something their grandfather did, like, how can they begin to heal that stuff? If say, They're not living anymore, or maybe they're just not in a place where they're able to discuss it. Yeah, there's a
0: lot of times where there's no information. Right. Uh, But this information lives in our trauma language. So, one of the things I have people do in the book is I teach them how to become detectives of the things that they say, the trauma language, because this information, even if we're adopted or our parents are gone or our parents won't talk about it, it lives in our fears. It lives in our unexplained symptoms. It lives in our self-destructive behaviors. It lives in our self-sabotaging behaviors. It lives in the symptoms of an illness that appear you know, after one of these unsettling events or when we're 25 or 45, it comes out, we have to look at those ages. It lives in our relationship struggles, who we choose, how we choose, the type of ways we let ourselves be treated, the type of ways we treat other people, All of this, including the ways we deal with money and success, all of this forms a breadcrumb trail that gives us a glimpse of what might have happened in our family, even if that story has been lost or kept secret. And this can help us explain why we feel the way we feel. But you asked me another question in there. How do we heal it? And I don't know if you're ready for this, but I'm ready to talk about it because I feel like I've given people only the bad news. And, and there's a ton of good news. I always think I'm the, the bearer of bad news. You know, I'm a messenger saying, guys, we're suffering for lots of different reasons here. You know, we're, It's not just our childhood experience. It's not just um, what happened in utero. It's not just our traumas in infancy or a delivery or labor. It's traumas that happened to our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents. So yeah, we have to look at this whole landscape. And we have to, you know, I, I, another thing I do in the book is teach people how to do a core language map to map out, to do a genogram, a traumagram, and to look at the events in the family history, and to hear the things that we say, to hear our trauma language and to find where this language lives in the family history. So verbal trauma language can be verbal and nonverbal. When it's verbal, you know, you, you can hear this language in the sentences we say, for example, the woman who I said, I'll harm my child. That's verbal trauma language. It wasn't her language, but it, here she was feeling that she could harm a child when her actually her grandmother accidentally harmed the child. But uh, there's also nonverbal language, too, and it lives in our physical and emotional symptoms especially the type of symptoms or behaviors that show up after an unsettling event. It also lives in the fears and the anxieties and the freeze responses that strike suddenly when we reach a certain age, we already talked about that an age that something else traumatic happened in the family history. So when I work with people, I'm shining a flashlight into the past, but I'm also looking at what's present our depression our destructive behaviors, etc, etc, because it leads us back into similar events in the
1: family history. So how does one start to really go back into the family history? Because I see a couple roadblocks, potential roadblocks, I guess, where somebody goes to their parents, and they're like, hey, like, I've started this healing journey, and I want to figure out like, what the heck's wrong with me? So what happened when you grow up? And, and, And a lot of times the parents will be like, shut down and they were like, you know what, it's none of your business, you know, because in that generation, sometimes like they're just taught to just move on and just not work, not just, you know, that just to deal with their problems in that time and just not worry about it. Right. Or yeah. people are emotionally shut down or people don't have access to, to actually understand like what specifically happened to their extended members of their family. Right. Because, a
0: lot of times we're not going to get that information from our parents. Right. Again, it lives in our symptoms. It lives in our verbal and our nonverbal trauma language. It lives in our behaviors, our our freezes, our shutdowns, our self-sabotaging behaviors. And then once we, and this is what I do in the book. I Sorry, I didn't mean to keep going back there, but I wrote the book for somebody that has no access to this information to look at what lives inside us and to be able to unpack that and be able to dig back into the family history, even if they don't know what's there.
1: So, Got got it, got it. So this, so essentially what you're saying is for a certain percentage of the people, they're able to kind of pinpoint certain moments in their family history and say, Oh, okay. Like my grandfather, like went to war during this time, or my great grandmother was like assaulted during this time right, or whatever that could lead to certain things that are going on. But then there's a lot of other people that don't have access to this, because let's face it, like most people, many people, I should say, they don't really like realize they need to start doing this work until things happen in their adulthood, they go through a divorce, or they're, you know, finding themselves later on in life, and not able to hold down a job or a relationship, or they're just anxious all the time, and they get to that point, where they're like, I, I got to do something about this, or I'm gonna be miserable the rest of my life. So the book, helps people really unpack the symptoms and what they're going through and develop awareness and then how to move forward out of that. So what are some of the tools that you give people? So say, like you've said, that you've helped them develop understanding around what it is that their core language is and their symptoms and what's going on, like what kind of things can they do to kind of change the dynamic of, of how they respond to life?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So we, we've got to have positive experiences, this is how we heal. This is how we heal in attachment trauma. This is how we heal from inherited family trauma. We've got to calm, calm the brain stress response, whether we've inherited that stress response from our parents or grandparents, or whether we had a trauma in early life that happened to us. So I wanna talk about these positive experiences because it's key to change our brain We've got to practice the new feelings and the new sensations associated with having positive experiences. Because when we do this, we not only create new neural pathways, we also stimulate the release of feel-good neurotransmitters like uh, dopamine, serotonin, GABA. We also stimulate the release of feel-good hormones in our body like estrogen, oxytocin, and from my perspective, the most important thing, we can even change the way our genes express. The, the very genes involved in our body's stress response can begin to function in, a, in an improved way. We can change the way our DNA expresses. So these positive experiences can be, you know, because you read the book, as you know, practices of receiving comfort and support, which is one of the reasons I said, take from your mom, let her give, let yourself receive. So there's practices of receiving comfort or support. Another practice is a practice of compassion, feeling compassion for ourself or what we went through, or even compassion for what our mom or dad had went through when they were small or when they were uh, infants or what happened to our grandparents. Another practice is a gratitude practice Another practice is a generosity practice, a loving kindness practice, a mindfulness practice, really ultimately anything that allows us to feel strength or peace or joy inside because, or wonder or curiosity or awe, because these types of experiences, Doug, they feed the prefrontal cortex and and can help us reframe that stress response so it has a chance to calm down. I love this analogy. We can only be at one place at one time. We can either be in our limbic brain operating from fear and terror, or we can be in our prefrontal cortex. You can't be in both parts of the brain at the same time. So the idea is to pull traction away from the limbic system, our overactive amygdala, which we know can be twice the size in traumatized people, to pull engagement away from our amygdala, our limbic system, and bring engagement to the the forebrain, specifically the prefrontal cortex, where we can integrate these new positive experiences. And our brains can change. We know from mindfulness, Doug, you know this, we know this, you probably have a gazillion mindfulness people on your podcast that practicing mindfulness actually shrinks the
1: amygdala and thickens the prefrontal cortex. Right. And it's so important when you're trying to heal anything or transform a behavior, transform a trauma, transform your health, whatever to like rewire your thoughts and rewire your patterns and create new neural pathways. It's like, that's what neuroplasticity is, right? Is your ability to kind of change the brain. And, and so I want to get into a subject that I know it can be touchy, but I think it's probably pivotal based on what I understand from your, from you and your book in the healing process. And that's healing a relationship with your parents, whether or not it's healthy or not. So if you could speak to, to why it's, it's so important for people, whether or not they, they like their parents or not, to make an effort to bridge that gap of love and then how somebody, specifically people who like, don't get along with their parents, like what are some simple things that they can do yeah. to, to nourish that relationship?
0: Absolutely. So I want to say right off the bat, if, if your parents are very challenging don't throw yourself in front of a moving train. Don't try to heal with them if it's destructive. But, if you're, but once we're able to reflect in a broader way behind our parents' actions and behaviors, for example, why was my mom hurtful or my dad critical? You know, often we can get back to it's a traumatic event in the family history that block the love that they could give. When we truly understand that, that when we can go behind the parents' behaviors, we we can see that this changes things. We we can feel with compassion. And through compassion, we know that's one of those states that, that feeds the prefrontal cortex. We actually, through when we fill with compassion, when we fill with compassion through compassion, we engage areas of our brain that fill us with peace. It doesn't excuse what our parents did, but it does explain, you know, I basically feel that we have to lose the story that we have with our parents. I found that the more that we reject our parents, the more we suffer. What's unhealed in us continues to live on inside us. Now, healing with them means that we're in tune with what they could give as well as with what they could not give but many of us have become fixated on what they did to us and how it spoiled our lives and this creates a template inside us that forges other relationships that go bad in other words we'll choose relationships that have a similar image a similar charge in a way because this our early traumas will just continue repeating so Oh, boy, I have so much to say here. I really do. But there are three unconscious ways that rejecting our parents continues to, oh gosh, it, yep. it continues in us. Let me say it this way. So if we, if we reject our parent, one of the things we'll do is we will reject that parent's behavior in us let me let me let me deepen that for example if we reject a parent for being cold we won't see how we're cold if we reject a parent for being hostile we won't see how we're being hostile we'll have disowned that behavior in us and then that behavior will unconsciously project onto other people that's one way Another way that happens is if we reject a parent, if let's say they're cold, we'll now project that behavior onto a partner. So we'll either pull in people who are cold or we'll wait for them to be cold, expecting them to be cold. And sure enough, eventually they're going to be cold because we see that we don't trust them. The third way it expresses is we will be cold to that young child part of us. We'll be hostile to that young child part of us. If our parent was aggressive, we'll be inwardly aggressive. If our parent was critical, we'll be self-critical. So you see how essential it is to heal these relationships
1: with our parent. And it's hard. It's tough. Just somebody from just speaking from experience, when, you know my my childhood wasn't the greatest and my relationship with my parents was was pretty bad up until I'd say my you know I guess like mid 20s I'd say is when it got better but I found that even though my relationship with both of my parents is not nearly perfect that my relationship with other people because I've kind of just swallowed my pride, if you will, and let my guard down and, and done the work to, to not just heal myself, but to forgive them, like really forgive them, not just say it and then like, act like I don't, you know, because I've, I've managed to improve those relationships. I've seen my relationship with others get better. And I found myself just, for the most part, happier with other relationships that I have in my life. Now, again, like they're not all perfect. Like I talked about you know previous times in my life where i've where relationships haven't been so great but with that said if i hadn't done any work with my parents it could have been much 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 worse
0: i love what you're saying it's really essential you know to just say those words you know it does improve our relationship with others when we begin to heal with them but i want to i want to talk to the people that cannot go home and cannot heal these relationships in person. So there are ways in which we can do it in our inner landscape through visualization. For example, if we, when we visualize a relationship, it's the same as if we are healing it in real life. So for many people who can't go back and, or the parents have passed on, or they don't feel safe, they might do something uh, like putting the parent's picture up. A lot of times I'll have somebody place the mother's picture over the left shoulder or put it on the left nightstand and say these words, you know, mom, I realize that I can't do this with you in real life, but, and I realize you would have given me more, if you had gotten more from your parents, but mom, can you hold me at night while I'm sleeping? You know, you're talking to this picture, you're visualizing a higher aspect of your mother, maybe her higher self if you feel spiritual or this being guided by some spiritual force if that fits in your world. But saying these words, mom, please hold me at night when I'm sleeping and help me heal this break in the attachment between us, teach me how to trust your love, how to receive it, and how to let it in without taking care of you, just receiving. You see Doug's doing something like that, even though they're not healing with their parents in real life, they're doing it in visualization can be just as potent. When we visualize something, the same regions of the brain activate, the same neurons activate as doing it in real life. So that might be a practice. Or let's say a parent's deceased lighting a candle and having a conversation with them through the flame. You know, these types of experiences, even though they're not in real life, can
1: be just as healing. Right, for sure. And I think you, I'm really glad you touched on that because I was going to ask, like, well, what do you say to somebody who like just doesn't feel safe to go home? Or they're at a point where their their parents aren't alive. Like, how can they do that? Like it's not like they could go over to their house for dinner and just have a conversation. Like I know that's something that that you would probably offer to people who have living parents is to go over and just enjoy a meal with them and be able to acknowledge them for doing that for you, or being able to go for a walk or whatever the case may be. That even though you're at a point where maybe not yet, you're not at that point. That you feel safe to go home and have like a have a conversation with your parents because of what happened, you can at least start the path forward. You can at least start something new by you know a couple of these practices that that you just said. There's a question that's been on my mind since we started the conversation. I've um actually that I wanted to address, and that's like, how does somebody know that what they're experiencing like right now is is something that's like in inherited trauma or trauma, if you will. And it's not just like what's going on in their life, like right now, like, how do they know that the, the anxiety they're experiencing isn't from the, the situation that they're that they're going through right now and, and not like something that happened like 60 or 70 years ago or 20 years ago?
0: Yeah, they trace it. So that's the thing I teach us how to do in the book. For example, if you had this anxiety, what event preceded this anxiety? And is that an event? that happened to somebody in the family history. We talked about it earlier with a certain age. So at 31, I leave a partner and oh my God, that's the same age my dad left my mother. It can also be all of a sudden something terrible happens and I start to develop these symptoms. So instead of just focusing on the symptoms and how ill I feel, or I, I go back to the events that preceded it. And maybe what happens, oh, that's when I moved. Oh my God, my, my ancestors were had to leave Ireland because they were starving or my ancestors were killed during the war and they had to leave the country. And all I did was move and it triggered this. Or again, a common one is getting married or having children or being rejected. These are all triggers that tell us we might be looking at inherited family trauma rather than a anxiety that's just arisen for no reason at all or is connected to an event we've just experienced.
1: Another question that popped up too was, do you ever find that people sometimes spend too much time like focusing on trauma and it becomes like this, this addiction, if you will, where what I mean by that is that like everything that, that happens in their life they just start to, to blame it on trauma and they just are so focused on like spending most of their life just trying to Absolutely. unpack everything they can and, it, and yeah. it really impedes their ability to move forward. Do you see that a lot? I do see it. Unfortunately, <laughs> people become,
0: it's almost as though we have a slight addiction to right. either the feeling bad part of it or even an addiction to healing and everything becomes this way in which we are trying to heal rather than living our lives. Sometimes it's just important to live, yeah. to, to play, to pet a cat, to play a guitar, to hold hands, to appreciate the sky, a sunset. And yeah, I'm in agreement with you. Sometimes it's just important to live our lives and stop looking for how we're bad or wrong life is wrong, uh, we're not healed. Hey,
1: maybe we are. Yeah, because yeah, I'm sure it gets to a point where if you I mean, again, it's important, I think, to do the work, you know, and start to unpack a lot of that if your life is continuing to, if your life is continuing to un- unveil in a way that's unravel in a way that's not conducive with who you want to be to start to do the work and unpack a lot of that trauma. But I think it gets to a certain point where, you don't want to be the person that like, every time something happens, like, oh, something must have happened to my grandma, like 60 years ago, or oh, like, I remember, like, I was two and a half years old, like, you just want to start to get to a place, I think, where you're able to be comfortable with a lot of what's happened. And it becomes second nature for you just to organically just move forward and have those tools and rewire your brain to have healthier patterns so that you're not constantly looking for all the bad in your life and focusing on that, because that can get that can traumatize you too. I feel like if that's all you're doing is staying in that, I mean, how dark would somebody's life be if all they did was focus on all the bad stuff that's happened to them, you know, throughout their life. And I'm not saying there's circumstances that aren't traumatically horrible because of course there are, but the unfortunate thing is you can't change the past. You can only change how you move forward. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's important to visit
0: the past for a short period of time to uh, find out how we're connected to traumas that are still keeping us stuck, and then it's time to move forward. But I, but I want to address another part of what you said. Even if we don't know what these traumas are and we can't go backwards, we don't need to know. We just need to focus on the good and grow the good. We just need to have positive experiences. So if we are continually sitting in the dirt, we're not moving forward. It's really important just to have positive experiences. Basically, to put it in a nutshell, we need to experience, we need to practice being with what lives in our body, even if it's uncomfortable. If it's uncomfortable, being with that until we can reach beneath it. The sensations that we experience as life-giving, for example, becoming the pulsing in our body. Not thinking the pulsing, not, not looking at it, but literally feeling it, riding it, becoming it, becoming the pulse, becoming the tingling in our body, becoming that feeling of softening in our body, becoming that feeling of expanding in our body, focusing on following our blood flowing and feeling the waves of blood, the pulsing of our blood, the waves of energy, the waves of warmth, and really letting ourselves feel it so deeply, it's as though we become it, duck. And then we need to practice holding those positive sensations for at least a minute and do this six times a day. That can be enough to change our brain, but it's essential. We take time to have these positive experiences and then let these sensations of the positive experiences affect us physically, viscerally, trust the feeling of it in our body. like the neuroscientists tell us, grow the good.
1: I think that's a perfect way for us to to wrap up our conversation, Mark. And there was so much we talked about that is going to help the people that are listening to this. And I've, I've really thoroughly enjoyed this. And I think just to kind of sum it up, it just seems that in order to get the the inherited trauma to kind of, you know, to stop, if you will, at where you are, it comes back to Developing the awareness around what's going on, where it came from, what the feelings are, and then creating new positive experiences around those situations to change the neuropathways, to create new neuropathways in the brain and be able to just acknowledge a lot of what the, the reason that things happen, like what, not why they happen, but acknowledge your current experiences as it relates to the past and then move forward in a way that, that's healthy and productive. Did I sum that up pretty well? You did great. That's exactly right. Spend a
0: little time back there, not too much. <laughs> right. pull, pull forward what we need to and then grow the good. You know, For me, it's a simple equation. Spend at least a minute, six different times in the day. That's 360 seconds of really being in a uh, a feeling, a sensation, a visceral sensation in the body that's positive that's that's uh, vibrant. you know basically feel your own vitality. Mm-hmm. feel your own blood flowing. feel the depth of the, all the systems in your body creating pulses, warmth, energy, flow, tingling, particles of, become particles of energy. It's almost as though if you sat long enough, You could learn, we all could learn to just, what is it like if we weren't this dense body? If we were just particles of energy, would these particles be swirling? Would they be moving up and down? Would they have a quality of light? And then just being that um, for 60 seconds, six times a day, changing our brain.
1: Mm. I love it, man. And I highly encourage people to, to get Mark's book. It didn't start with you it's a game changer and i think it's one of those books that you're gonna read and you're gonna look back years later and say that was one of the books that deeply impacted my life because of just the amount of information and and really just it's groundbreaking stuff if you will to to really unpack trauma in a way that's maybe not near not as not talked about as much and again pick his book up. And if Mark, if they want to connect with you on social media or check out your website, where, where's the best place for them, to, for them to do that?
0: We're all over on social media. Uh, my website is markwolincom W-O-L-Y-N-N.com. Um, there's a training on there. If you're a clinician, you want to learn how to do this work, or even if you want to take a deep dive, because I make the people who learn it go deep
1: diving in the training. Awesome. Oh. Well, I'll make sure to include all the links in the show notes. And, and Mark, I wanted to thank you once again for coming on. I and mean, for those listening, this is going to be one of those episodes where you're going to you're gonna get a lot of takeaways. You're going to get a lot of things that you're going to apply into your daily life. And what I want you to do is, is take a screenshot, tag Mark, tag myself with something that you learned and not just something you learned that you're going to apply. Maybe it was something that he said about maybe going back a little bit. In your family lineage to see like, you know, what kind of traumas might have occurred. Maybe you're going to call your mom and your dad if you haven't talked to them in a while. Maybe you're going to start to take better care of yourself and, you know, experience more things in a positive way throughout the day, whatever it is, tag Mark, tag myself. We'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and we'll see you next time.